welcome to episode 192 of Speaking of Mysteries. I'm Nancy Clare, and today's guest on the podcast is Marcia Clark, whose final judgment is about to be published by Thomas and Mercer. Thank you so much for talking with Speaking of Mysteries, Marcia. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me, Nancy. Um, I think before we dive into your new book, uh, which it should be noted is the fourth installment in your Samantha Brinkman series, we have to talk about the challenges of launching a book in a time of pandemic. I mean, it's hard enough to get a book out in front of readers in the best of times. So I have to ask, what are you doing? Well, I'm not. My publisher is. <laughs> Honestly, I mean, that's the truth. And, you know, Thomas and Mercer is through Amazon. So it's they have it down to a science. They absolutely, you know, you just go to Amazon, click, you've got the book, especially if it's a Kindle. Um, you know, a digital, you have it immediately. So um, that makes it so much easier. But even the hard covers, um, at, you know, the hard copies, you know, you click, it's a one-click thing and you, it, it goes right out to you. So really it doesn't seem, maybe it's a little longer to deliver hard copies, but um, I haven't felt it in real bump. The big difference that I have felt personally is that instead of doing in-person interviews, you know, and then I'm, you know, I'm doing things like this, <laughs> I'm zooming a lot. <laughs> So jumping into the story, uh, money is often called the root of all evil. Uh, it's certainly the root of a lot of crime, uh, not just the actual crime of theft and fraud, but you know, often the murderous reactions to it. So it's hard to feel sorry when shady investment advisors who ruin people's lives turn up dead. I mean, Samantha Brinkman doesn't really, isn't really shedding a lot of tears. Uh, and I kind of agree with her. Does that make me a bad person? No, I don't think so. <laughs> Certainly Sam doesn't think so. I mean, yeah. So I usually, I do pick bad guys who are um, topical in some way. Um, and in this case, um, I was particularly aiming at fraudsters. Um, Bitcoin has had its share, uh, maybe no more than others, but it's been recently, it's a new thing that's on the horizon. And so my advisor of partnership uh, in Gold Strike Company, um, uh, it's a stock trading company and uh, they became they did fairly well but, but no one knew is that they were always fraudsters in this in this book it's more a personal story than the other three because the suspect winds up being her boyfriend um, Nico who is a world famous martial artist who became uh, an entrepreneur with um, video classes and all kinds of investments and um, merchandising etc and he uh, befriended these guys Gold Strike, and they talked him into investing with them a few years back, and they were doing very well. So he turned his friends on to this uh, company, he turned his mother on to this company, and then they hit the big Bitcoin trade, and uh, it turned out to be a gigantic house of cards. It was a fraud along the line of Bernie Madoff, and it collapsed. And it ruined, like, all of his friends and destroyed his mother completely. She wound up having a stroke. And uh, Nico wants to be a person of interest uh, throughout the investigation. And it poses a lot of kind of moral dilemmas um, and uh, some of Sam's own hypocrisy. Because Sam Brinkman is someone who, uh, she's a defense attorney, but she's also a, a woman who had a, a miserable childhood, raised by a narcissistic mother who was neglectful, uh, couldn't care less about her, didn't want her, um, and winds up. Someone's being abused by one of the mother's boyfriends. 
uh, with the help of uh, her friend and she makes in uh, Junior High, Michelle, she, she becomes best friends. Though Sam doesn't trust very many people, she does trust her. And then when she becomes, when she opens her own law practice, she becomes her, um, her basically everything, office manager, bookkeeper, you name it, hair legal. Um, and then the other member of the trio is Sam's client uh, who was charged with hacking into the BMW dealership where he was working in order to liberate a couple of cars so he could make, sell them and make money to support his family. Um, and he's a genius hacker. Sam represents him, gets him off, and then hires him, and he's her investigator. So the three of them are the triumvirate. But Sam uh, is someone who not only bends the law, she breaks it and then sets it on fire. <laughs> she does not care about rules. What she cares about is justice the way she sees it. Um, so she's somebody who will go to the ends of the earth and not worry about breaking the law while she's doing it to make sure that justice happens. And that means getting, you know, not letting bad guys might otherwise get away with murder. Um, she doesn't let them get away with it. And sometimes commits murder in the process herself. So when, of course, she doesn't tell anyone about that. What she does, you know, to make cases happen and make the bad guys get their just desserts, something that she keeps largely to herself. Um, uh, she knows, of course, Alex, her her hacker investigator, um, knows that he's hacking illegally, and she just trusts to make sure he never gets caught. But she doesn't let either him or Mishi know that she's getting people killed as well. So when Nico is, and and yet I think by the time we're in this fourth book, Mishi kind of does know. She just knows, knows that she's not supposed to know. No one talks about um, Sam's more violent extracurricular activities. Um, but she is upset at the possibility that Nico might have killed, oh, I, I don't know if I said this, the partners in gold strike. First one um, winds up dead, another one winds up missing. And Nico becomes the person of interest. And uh, Sam is upset somehow that he really might have killed these guys, um, not because he killed them, <laughs> but because he didn't <laughs> tell her about it. <laughs> and so how can she trust him if she's not up, if he's not up front with her? And Mishi kind of calls her on it, you know, and says, well, wait a minute. Are you, how upfront have you been? Um, the person who really calls Sam on it, though, is her father. Her father's an LAPD detective. Um, we meet him in the first book of the series, Blood Defense, when he hires her to represent him because he's been accused of the murder of two women, one of whom is a, uh, a, ho a Hollywood actress who had been on the skids and was making her big comeback. It's her and her roommate who wind up dead. He winds up accused of their murder. He hires Sam to represent him. He knows that he's Sam's father. Sam does not know because her mother never told her who the father her father was. She didn't want her to know because she didn't, he didn't, she did not want to have a father in the, the picture. Uh, Sam discovers it in blood defense. But she also discovers over the course of the series, and especially in Final Judgment, is that she and her father have a great deal in common um, in terms of delivering justice their own way, uh, which means not necessarily legally. And in this last uh, installment of the Samantha Brinkman series, they have pretty frank discussions about what each of them does and how they collaborate, have been collaborating together. I would say that both he and Samantha are a little bit on the spectrum of sociopath. Um, they have a heart, they care, but they also have not a lot of conscience about how they go about you know, exacting justice. Well, I, I found it to be a great story. And for me, it was more than a page turner, though. Uh, I'm a former journalist, and I found 
that one of the thing, one of the elements that really sort of jumped out at me was the confirmation bias that the police had, mm -hmm. that Nico was guilty of the death of the one financier. Um, they don't seem to be, the police don't seem to be looking for anyone else. And so uh, first question is, is that a, an accurate assessment? On the other hand, the confirmation bias of the police, if it was there, drives Sam to do the digging that seems to make the story, that doesn't seem, actually makes the story race along. So it's sort of a two-part question. <clears throat> first of all, in the real world, how damaging can confirmation bias be? And in uh, the uh, crime fiction world, how, how good is it for something to help propel the story? Well, confirmation bias is a real thing. And it's something that um, it's a natural human instinct to say, oh, the woman's dead, the boyfriend did it, you know, or the husband did it. Um, and it's something that is, it's helpful actually, if it's not overused, in terms of uh, starting an investigation, because nine times, you know, you, you go with the majority of experience. You know, nine times out of ten, it is the husband, it is the the boyfriend or whatever, who, when a woman winds up dead. But you don't stop there. And sometimes it does happen that police become have tunnel vision, and they focus uh, to the exclusion of all other leads on the one that seems most likely, has proven to be most likely in other cases. But that can blind you to the leads that show that should be followed up, that show that not this time, it's someone else this time. So um, that is a real thing. And it's something that is um, th that experts have warned about and that um, detectives who know what they're doing know better than to get sucked into. Um, it's not a bad place to start uh, with the boyfriend or the husband, but you must move on um, and look at other leads as well. And so that's real. Um, Sam uh, knows that the the police involved in this particular case, uh, in this book, uh, one of them, at least one detective, very smart. And he's looking at Nico with very good reason because Nico was very, he was the person closest to these two partners uh, in Gold Strike. He was the one last seen with at least one of them um, and actually with another, with the one that disappeared. He has the biggest motive. His mother had a stroke and it may very well die uh, as a result of the fraud that was perpetrated and destroyed her financially. And uh, many of his friends are in terrible, terrible shape as a result. So he has all kinds of motive and uh, looks like opportunity as well. He had access to these guys and other investors did not. Um, so Sam can talk about confirmation bias all she wants and go after these um, the possibilities of other suspects, which of course she has to do. As a defense attorney, that's what you do. But that doesn't mean the cops are wrong. So that's what uh, there, there's a constant back and forth there where she has to acknowledge it as well. You know, I, I don't blame them for looking at him, but I have to look somewhere else. Well, I found Final Judgment to be a very L.A. book. Uh, I have to admit, I started to read it at the beginning of our sort of safer at home coronavirus confinement. I live in L.A. And I found myself nostalgic reading your descriptions of the city's traffic and going to restaurants and dropping okay. off at, you know, dropping by the bagel shop. Uh, our, you know, sclerotic traffic is the bane of our existence oh, it, yes. until it's not. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> I want to thank you. I want to thank you for that, for, for saying, oh, yes, I remember. <laughs> remember how that was? <laughs> remember restaurants? Yeah. <laughs> I, I do wonder what kind of 
What's going to happen when people are writing about the pandemic? I mean, is anybody going to want to read a book that talks about everybody staying home? <laughs> Although uh, on the one side, it might make for very good plot developments. But I have to say that uh, last week I, I had to go somewhere and I, I found myself driving north on the 405 at 5.15 p.m. And I looked down at the speedometer and I was doing 80 and not keeping up with traffic. Yeah. So, it was... <laughs> yeah. Isn't it something? I mean, it's, it's the weirdest thing. It's like, I, I, I look at the freeway and think, you know what? This is what freeways were supposed to be like. This is what they were meant to do, is get you someplace really fast. And we haven't had that experience in Los Angeles in a really long time. It's really, so, I mean, I don't know if you call it a silver lining to this pandemic, but it also kind of feels dystopian. You know, I feel like we've, we've, we're, the apocalypse has happened, and there we are alone on the freeway. It's very creepy. I know, and it's and and I think it's. Um, I recently read Michael Connolly's latest uh, book, the one that's about to be published, and traffic becomes part of the plot uh, for procedurals in Los Angeles. Yeah. Um, the detective or the investigator or the journalist always has to factor in, well, I have to go see X. Um, He or she lives in North Hollywood. I'm in Santa Monica. One of those can't get there from here scenarios in any good way. So you're right in in wondering, like in in the post-pandemic world or during the pandemic, what will that look like for uh, the crime fiction that will be seen next year? And your point is well taken. Will we even want to see crime fiction with that in it? Yeah, and it does make me wonder. I mean, I think to the extent that you do, you know, the most realistic thing you could do is do a kind of Agatha Christie setup where everybody's trapped in a house together and, you know, and there's a dead body in the attic, (laughs) you know, and then you have to do, you know, 10 little Indians, right? Like who did it? But yeah, and I have to say, I have used in the Rachel Knight series even more, but sometimes in Sam's series as well, I use their time in the car as a dramatic device because people can be more forthcoming in this weird kind of side-by-side situation in a car where you're, it's intimate, and at the same time, there's a kind of distraction to it because you you're not face-to-face, um, and you can have some really intense uh, confrontations or... Uh, revelations in in the scenes where they are driving. So um, I, I try to use it as much as possible. But yeah, you also have to factor you. It's something you have to factor in in terms of how soon can I get where, you know? So, um, and this is my last question, um, although it's, it's a sort of a multi-part one. Uh, I read in the press material that this is the last installment of Samantha Brinkman's story. And uh, my first part of the question is, is that true? If that is, how do you feel about ending a series? And probably the most important, uh, what does Samantha think about it? Because I'd be really careful about pissing her off. (laughs) For sure. I mean, yeah, (laughs) I am a little nervous. Um, It is the last one for now in the series. Um, And I'm going to miss Sam, honestly. She's a cool character. And that's why I say for now, because I can see coming back to her. Um, I did wind up uh, developing a pilot for NBC with my uh, writing partners, uh, Liz Craft and Sarah Fain. We sold that pilot script to NBC a few years ago. And I keep thinking that she could make a comeback that way, or she could be the subject of another book because she is so much fun to write. 
but I have been wanting to write a standalone for a very long time. And I had meant to write a standalone before I, I started the Samantha Brinkman series. That was my plan. And I kind of noodled around with an idea that focused on a juror and on a crime victim and I, various ones. And then Sam just popped into my head, like without any preparation at all. She just all of a sudden there she was like almost fully formed and, you know, and tell, and asking what about me? <laughs> so I wound up writing Sam. Um, and now, but now I really am writing a standalone. Uh, so it will be just because I think it was time to stretch in a different direction. That doesn't mean though that Sam won't come back at some point because, uh, she might insist <laughs> and I can't say no. I, although uh, in in sort of in conclusion, it should be noted that, you know, crime is definitely your beat and you do yeah. have a full plate of crime fiction and true crime platforms that you're, you work on. Um, so it's good to know you're, you're embarking on a standalone uh, and I very much look forward to seeing it. Great, 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 great. I, I look forward to you reading it. <laughs> Well, Marsha Clark, uh, final judgment. Thank you so much for joining us and for talking to me about it. And uh, as I said, I look forward to whatever's next because whatever it will be, will be spying, tingling, I'm sure. Thank you so much, Nancy. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. 